Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. I want to welcome everybody here in the sanctuary, but also everyone down in Converge, uh, the South Campus, West Campus, and everyone who's worshiping online. That's a growing congregation. Uh, we're well, we want to welcome all of you here today. Well, many of you don't know me, and you're fortunate. Um, and so if you don't know me, you don't know this about me. I love books. I love to read. I'm a ferocious reader. But I'm always amazed at what books get popular. You know, you look at the best-selling lists, and there's books on there, and you go, why was that one popular? How did that book make it to the top of the list? Well, in 2004, there was a book that was published that, I mean, literally skyrocketed to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. And it remained there for a very long period of time. And here we are years later, and that book has sold nearly 8 million copies. And in that book, in the introduction to the book, the author kind of tells you what's in store. And I think it reveals some insights into why that book was and still is so popular. Let me read this. It says, happy, successful, fulfilled individuals have learned how to live their best lives now. They make the most of the present moment and thereby enhance their future. You can too. No matter where you are or what challenges you're facing, you can enjoy your best life right now. That's an incredible offer, a very appealing offer. It appeals to anyone and everyone, which is probably why the book has sold so many copies. But let me ask you this, is he right? Is that true? You see, this best-selling book has some things in it that I find a bit disturbing. And this is not intended to be a critique of that book or even a criticism of that book. It's, it's more to help us understand that he goes on to link these best life now promises to God. Listen to what he says. God wants us to constantly be increasing, to be rising to new heights. He wants to increase you in his wisdom and help you to make better decisions. God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions, fresh ideas, and creativity. The scripture says that God wants to pour out his far and beyond favor. God wants this to be the best time of your life. Is that true? Is the best time of your life what God has in store for you and me right here, right now? Is that the reason he sent his son to take on human flesh, to live a sinless life, to die on a cruel Roman cross, to be buried in a tomb, rise again, ascend on high? Is that the reason so that we might have our best life now? Now, you may be wondering, what has that got to do with the sermon. It has a whole lot to do with it. Because the promises made in that book are really what we're going to find out as we look at Matthew chapter 13, verses, verses 47 through 50. We are in the fourth of four sermons on the parables of the kingdom found in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn there. This series is called To the Point. And Jesus is trying to help his disciples get to the point. The point of the kingdom, the point of his arrival, his coming, why was he there? And so this week we're going to look at what's called the parable of the net, sometimes called the parable of the dragnet, and we'll unpack that in just a second. But I want to read this passage, and I want you to think very carefully about what is being said, and think about those two quotes I just read you. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full... 
men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you can automatically kind of jump to the conclusion that this is a parable about hell, but it's not. It's not a parable about hell, even though it's referenced here, and Jesus never shied away from the topic of hell. He dealt with it all the time. He believed in it. But this is, like all the other parables, a parable about the kingdom. You remember, these parables are, are intended to reveal hidden truths, never before revealed secrets to the disciples. And that's exactly what this passage does. They're aimed at his disciples. Cody last week told us that there's a transition that took place. Chapter 13 opens up with Jesus leaving a house, going out to the sea. He gets in a boat. The people line up on the shore, and he begins to tell them parables. But then there's a time in which he goes back in the house, and he takes his disciples with him. And these parables from this point forward have been directed at them. This is for the disciples' ears. You remember back in verse 11, it says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To you, disciples, followers, to you it's been given the privilege. To everyone else, it's hidden. They don't get it. They don't understand it. But to you, you have this given to you. Things that have been hidden since before the foundation of the world, it says in verse 35. Now think about that for a second. That means these things have been hidden from Abraham, Noah, Moses, Jacob, Isaac, the prophets, no one up until this point understood these truths, and now he's revealing them to the disciples. But you have to ask, why? Why is Jesus deciding at this point in time in his ministry to begin to reveal to his disciples information about the kingdom? Well, here's what I believe. It's because the disciples had some glaring misconceptions about the kingdom. They had some glaring misconceptions about the kingdom. You know, when they heard Jesus say in John 10.10 that I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, what they heard was different than what Jesus said or meant. When they heard that word abundantly, much like you and I, we hear that and we place our definition on that word. I want my version of the abundant life. I want my version of the best life now. And in essence, that's what the disciples were expecting. They heard him saying, I have come to fulfill all your desires for the kingdom. And they had many. See, they had been taught since they were young boys that the Messiah was going to come someday and they were ready for him to come. They longed for him to come because when he came, things were going to be different. He was going to establish his kingdom. And so their concept of the kingdom was about a Messiah who would come and he would put them back on the map. The Israelites would be put back on the map politically, militarily, financially. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. J. J. Dwight Pentecost says this in his book, Thy Kingdom Come. The nation of Israel eagerly expected the coming of a Messiah who would redeem God's people from their sins, deliver deliver them from the bondage of their oppression, and institute a kingdom over which he would rule in peace and righteousness. 
That's what they wanted. That's what they were expecting. They were looking for a conquering king. As a matter of fact, they were looking for another David. Someone like David, someone who would be a warrior king who would ride into town on a white horse and he would conquer the Romans and he would remove their rule over them, their oppression over the people of Israel. He would reestablish the kingdom like it used to be during the days of David. And they would once again be prosperous. The prophet Ezekiel writes down the words of God predicting that very thing, the very thing they hope for. Listen to what he says. My servant David, God says, will be their king, and they will have only one shepherd. They will obey my regulations and be careful to keep my statutes, my decrees. They will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob, the land where their ancestors live. They and their children and their grandchildren after them will live there forever, generation after generation, and my servant David will be their prince forever. There's a problem, right? This is an Old Testament prophecy prophesying the coming of David. David is dead. David's been long gone by the time we get to this passage in Matthew Matthew chapter 13. And yet they're still waiting for someone who would look like, emulate, and conquer just like David did. You see, they expected, these disciples expected to rule and reign alongside the coming Messiah. So they had hitched their wagon to Jesus Christ, and they came to believe that he truly was the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel. And so after three-plus years with him, they're waiting for him to, let's set this thing up, let's get this thing going, let's get busy, it's time for you to set up your kingdom. You see, their concept of the kingdom was self-centered, and it was focused completely on immediate gratification. What do I get out of it right here, right now? What are you going to do for me right here, right now? Set up your kingdom. Get rid of the, Jews, the Romans so that the Jews can now rise to power again, and they were hoping that they could rule alongside of Jesus. Now, how do we know that? Am I just making this stuff up? Well, there's plenty of examples in the Gospels of the disciples revealing their thought that the kingdom should have been coming right then. But one of the most egregious is the story where the mother of James and John comes to Jesus, and she makes a a rather bold and presumptuous request of the Lord on behalf of James and John, her two sons. And she comes to Jesus, and here's what she asks him. She says, in your kingdom... Please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. What's she asking for? Power positions for her two two boys. This is a helicopter mom if there ever was one. You know, she's, she's working Jesus. She believes Jesus to be the Messiah. She believes he, he, he is that second David, and she's working Jesus to see if she can get her two sons to sit in the most powerful positions in his royal administration. She's thinking kingdom on earth now. And sadly, we know there's another occasion where the two brothers come to Jesus and ask the same thing. And every time this request was made, the other disciples would get jealous, which tells us that they wanted the same thing. They wanted their best life now alongside Jesus. It's interesting to to fast forward to after Jesus 
died, was buried, rose again, and then appeared to his disciples multiple times. He assembles them on the Mount of Olives, and he's getting ready to ascend back on high to the right side of God the Father. And the disciples come to him and listen to their request. This is in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They say, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Now, what are they saying? Jesus has died, been buried, rose again, appeared to them multiple times. He's getting ready to ascend on high, and they're thinking about earthly kingdom. They're thinking, okay, you've died. You've proven who you are. You've raised from the dead. So this must be the time. Is now when you're going to establish your kingdom on earth. They are fixated on it. It's all they can think about. See, they're hoping he will restore Israel to power, prestige, and prominence, and they're hoping that their last three and a half years with him will now pay off. They'll they'll benefit from all the perks that come with power and position and prominence. But I love how Jesus responds. Remember, he knows he's getting ready to ascend up into heaven and return to his father's side. So he says to them, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. And they're not for you to know. Quit worrying about that. But you will receive power. Now, now don't miss this. What were they looking for? Power, earthly power. And Jesus says, you're going to get power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. See, they were looking for power that would benefit them. Jesus is offering them power that will benefit others. You will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus is revealing secrets they don't know about the kingdom. There will be a day when God does restore Israel When Jesus Christ does sit on a throne in Jerusalem and rule and reign, but now was not the time. They were looking for their best life now, and Jesus is saying, you're looking for the wrong thing. You see, Jesus did not call them to witness the restoration of the kingdom, but to bear witness to his arrival as the king. If we're not careful, we can miss the point of this parable every day and think that Jesus Christ died so that we might have our best best life now, but Jesus is telling the disciples that the kingdom will come, but for right now, your job is of a different nature. You're to bear witness that I have arrived, but I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. You need to tell everyone, everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were to cast their net, as the parable infers, as far as they could. Again, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So to speak, from sea to shining sea. They were to fish anywhere and everywhere, and they would. They would do just that, and when they did, Guess what? They would find it filled with fish of every kind. 
See, when the Holy Spirit did come at Pentecost and they began to preach and teach and spread out, they saw people of every tribe, nation, and tongue coming to faith. Caught in that net. But this brings us back to the parable. What's Jesus' point? What's he trying to tell them? You see, he compares the kingdom of heaven to a net. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman, but I've never fished with a net. But when he used this term net, it's really the term for dragnet. And most of those men he's talking to, many of whom were fishermen, knew exactly what he was talking about. It's a large net. And when that net goes out, it, it catches everything in its path. The, the way it was used is you would take one end of the net and you would fix it to the shore. And then the fishermen would they'd go out into the water, either wading into the, the ocean, or he would take a boat and he would take the other end of that net and he would go in a circle as far as he could. And then he would come back to the shore and he would get, begin to reel it in. It had weights. Those weights took the net all the way to the bottom, and then it had floats that kept it at the top. So it literally caught everything in its path. That's what Jesus is saying. And because it's large, it's going to catch anything and everything. And this is important for us to notice in this parable. And we've seen it in the other parables. The gospel goes out, the, the news of the kingdom goes out, and it attracts, and it brings in all kinds of things. Notice that Jesus says it gathered fish of every kind. Now, we know he's not talking about fish, right? He's talking about people, but he, he's very specific. It gathered fish of every kind, and that word kind in the Greek is genos. And it's where we get our word genus or species. So it's catching, catching every imaginable kind of fish, mackerel, tuna, St. Peter's fish, you name it, flounders, it's catching them all because it goes from top to bottom. It's encompassing and it brings in everything, every kind of fish. And really what Jesus is saying is when the gospel goes out, it's going to bring in every ethnicity, every people group, people of every color. And see, that is not what the disciples are expecting. That's not the kingdom they were hoping for. And this is all new to them. You see, there's something really important going on in this passage that they needed to hear. And guess what? You and I need to hear it. Notice that Jesus doesn't list the fish by their genus, their species. How does he list them? He says, it's all by their character. He says, they're either good or they're bad. Then he goes on to say they're either righteous or wicked. He's, he mentions nothing about their ethnicity, country of origin, color of their skin, language they speak. It's all about whether they are good or bad, righteous or wicked. See, they're all fish, but they don't all share the same quality or character. The net's gone out, They've all been brought in, but there's something different. See, they're not all keepers. Again, I'm not a fisherman, but I know when you fish, some are keepers, some are not. That's what he's saying. They're not all keepers. They all don't end up in the same place. This is a really difficult passage. And not just because it talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's talking about the fact that 
when it is all said and done, at the end of the age, there will be a separating take place between the good and the bad, the wicked and the righteous. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, and by inference, he's talking to you and I. And again, this is all new to them. They're trying to get their heads around, what is Jesus trying to say? I would love to have been there as he was dumping this on them, and you can just see them all looking at each other with you know, wide eyes going, does anyone have a clue what he's talking about? This isn't what we expected. See, they believed that when the Messiah came, who would be an Israelite, he would set up an Israelite kingdom, and it would be made up of one genus, Jews. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll take in a few proselytes, we'll take in those who've converted to Judaism, but it's primarily going to be a kingdom made up of Jews. And now Jesus is saying, oh no, it's going to bring in fish of every kind, but at the end of the day, it's all going to boil down to one thing. Are they good or bad, righteous or wicked? See, they grew up believing something completely different about the kingdom. And I love what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was news to them. This was not what they were expecting. So what Jesus is, is really revealing to them, this, this hidden secret from before the foundation of the world, is the kingdom is remarkably different than what you expect, and it, it's going to involve judgment. That's what those closing verses talk about. The good and the righteous will be kept, but there's going to be people who are not. You see, the kingdom's going to grow. That's what the parable three weeks ago told us. It's going to grow, but it's also going to end up with people who are good and bad. It's going to end up with people who are righteous and those who are wicked, evil. The saved and the lost. See, right now, here's what I know. I don't know the majority of the people in this room, but I can guarantee that in this room or wherever you're sitting right now, there are people with you around you who aren't saved even though they're in church, even though they appear to be saved, they're not. Going to church does not make you saved any more than living in your garage makes you a car. So just because you're here, just because you go through all the rituals and all the things that we do here and you sing the songs doesn't mean you're necessarily saved. See, what's important for us to understand is that Jesus wants them to know that, yes, I am the king, and the differentiator between who is good and bad is, do you know the king, and does the king know you? See, that's, that's huge, right? That's, that's what he wants his disciples to understand. It's not whether you're a Jew, it's whether you have placed your faith in the king, Back in chapter 7, listen to what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
See, the disciples are having to get their heads and hearts around this idea that you've got to know the king, and you've got to believe who the king is, and you've got to understand that he's come to offer you a kingdom, but that kingdom is yet to come. It won't be based on behavior, in other words. It's, the good and the bad isn't about you do good things and you do bad things. That's not what this is about. It's about a relationship to the king. And guess what? The disciples would not be able to tell the difference, and neither can you. That's, that's why my job is not to differentiate, it's to communicate. Tell people about the king. At the end of the day, what Jesus is trying to get these guys to understand is that it's a time to cast the net. See, that's the point. That's the point of the parable. What's, what's the hidden thing that he's trying to let them know? It's the fact that for now, for now, the kingdom is about casting the net, not casting aside. It's about fishing, not feasting. What do I mean by that? Keep in mind, these men were hoping that the kingdom was about to come, that Jesus was about to set up his kingdom on earth, and they were going to benefit from it. But he says, no, no, no. Your job is to cast the net. Do not try to cast aside. Don't decide they don't belong. And all you have to do is read the rest of the Gospels to realize that the disciples were guilty of looking down their noses at Samaritans, Gentiles, Roman centurions, tax collectors. They were just as appalled at some of Jesus' actions and the people he hung with as the Pharisees were. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. But see, Jesus says, you just worry about casting the net, not casting aside. We'll take care of that later. And they were to fish, not feast. They were looking for feasting. They were looking for their best life now. They were hoping Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. But remember, when he called most of those men, what did he say to them? He said, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. But that seemed to escape their mind at the time. They had forgotten that commission that come follow me and you're going to learn how to fish for people. They were fishing for a kingdom. They wanted their best life now. But at the present time, then as now, the kingdom is about sharing, not separating. And if you hear nothing else, hear that. Right now, as we live on this planet in the midst of all the chaos and confusion surrounding us, our job is to share the news of the king and his kingdom and how to have a relationship with him. It's not about trying to separate. It's about reconciling lost people to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about ruling and reigning. One of the things I see happening in the world today among Christians is that we want some kind of earthly utopia. And, and we think if we get behind this ideology or that ideology, or if we align ourselves with this particular group or that particular group, maybe we can usher in the kingdom. No, you will not. The kingdom is to come. Your job, my job, is to fish, to share. So we're to live with the end in mind. You see, the disciples were longing for a here and now kingdom with all the perks and benefits that come with it. But Jesus tells them in verses 41 through 42, the Son of Man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he repeats it in verses 49 through 50. 
You see, he's, he's not afraid to talk about hell, right? It does exist, and it will happen. That time will come, but we're living in a different time. So I want to I share just a, a, a little story that in my life, it's very recent, it's still alive and well, and I want it to help you understand where I think this is going. The other night, I was driving around the corner, coming back from the grocery store. I pulled onto our street, and there's a house that's about not 200 yards from my front door. And there's a family that lives there, and they've been there for probably three-plus years. And they're a Muslim family. How do you know they're a Muslim family? Well, I see the mother in full hajib walking through our neighborhood in the mornings when I go for a run. I've seen the two daughters wearing their head coverings when they go to school. One's probably in elementary school. One's probably in middle school. I know they're a Muslim family. But that's all I know. So I pull around the corner, and for the first time in the, the, the three-plus years they've been there, I see the whole family out in the front yard. There's a dad. There's the mom in full hajib. There's the two girls with their head coverings. They're playing and laughing. The dad is laying sod in their yard, and the mother is helping him. And for the first time, I recognized that's a family. I didn't see them as Muslims. I saw them as a family. And here's what hit me. I don't even know their names. I have never walked across the street to get to know this family that obviously does not know the king like I know the king. They worship something else. And see, this passage tells me, guys, that there's a day coming when that family, if they are not introduced to the king and given an opportunity to choose life with the king, they will be on the wrong side of that separating equation. And do I care? I'll be honest, I still have not gone across the street. And I want you, family, to hold me accountable. And when you see me, ask me. See, I don't want to. I don't want to get rejected. I don't want them to say no, but my job is not to save them. My job is to love them. Jesus Christ saves. I just, I just share the love of Christ. But to do that, I've got to go to them. See, Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 10. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, Muslims, Jews, Gentiles, every species imaginable. If they call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But he goes on, listen to this, and please don't miss this. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ right now, you have been sent. So let's get to the point. We have been called to share the good news, not live the good life. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have a bass boat, if you have a... a a home on the lake, wonderful. If you live in a nice neighborhood and you send your kids to the best of schools, rejoice in it, enjoy it. They're blessings from God, but that is not why you're here. You're here to share the good news, not live the good life. And we have been commanded to fish, not feast. 
See, many of us are feasting on all the blessings of God, but we're not sharing it with anyone around us who needs to hear it and benefit from it. And finally, we're to fish as long as the sun is still shining, S-O-N. Because what does this passage tell me? There is a day coming when the Savior becomes the judge. That's why we're to cast while we still can, because there's a time when we won't be able to cast the net anymore, and those people will be cast aside, whether they're my neighbors who live less than 200 yards from my front door, your coworker, family member. So I'll close with this. Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14 tells us what we have enjoyed as followers of the king. Paul says, He, God, has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased us, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. You have greatly benefited. But what about all those who have not heard? What about my Muslim neighbors? What about all the people in this community and in this world who desperately need to hear about the king and his kingdom? I want to challenge you to fish as long as the sun is still shining. Fish and don't feast. Don't live for your best life now. That day's coming. But share the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone you can, while you can. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning, and Father, we admit that we spend far too much time feasting, enjoying the blessings that you've given us. Father, we we live with our eyes fixated on your kingdom now, but you've called us to set our eyes on a future kingdom. Yes, it will come, and you will do everything you've promised to do, but in the meantime, we have a job to do. We have a message to share. You've called us to be fishers of men and women and children to tell the good news of the king. The king has come and his kingdom will come, but they need to know the king. Father, would you light a fire within me, light a fire within each and every person in this room who is a follower of Jesus Christ that we might go and tell and share the good news with anyone and everyone. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, and our coming King. Amen.